Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back. Yes. This is Tuesday. COVID-30. This is the 30th time we've had a COVID echo and a COVID podcast later. And uh, that's just a lot of COVID. Yes. We do Uh, apologize that there was no uh, COVID podcast on the bullet points or the the journal articles because they didn't have any major updates. And so this week I'm expecting us to be plowed with them. Yeah, we'll see. Anyway, so today we had a few different speakers. We had Jerrica Burge. Yes. And uh, she's from the UVM. And we also had Dr. Catherine Bigelow, who was uh, a perinatal doctor. And then Alina. Denise Herman, who is a nurse practitioner at MDH, talking about the schools and daycares and all of that. Yeah, there was a lot of information today. So we're going to try and whip through it as quickly as humanly possible to get you back to your normal life. Unless you're in a long run, we can talk really slowly. We'll slow way down. <laughs> so first, Jerrica came on. She just was highlighting a presentation that was actually done by two of her colleagues at the U of M. And it was basically about co- social constructs of society and racial inequity, mostly in regards to COVID. And uh, there was links for that. And I'm not sure if we're posting those links, are we? I think, Kate, if you would like those, you could email Katie Stangle at catholichealth.net. Perfect. And she would get you that nice link to their little presentation. Yes. And then Dr. Catherine Bigelow from the Minnesota Perinatal Physicians at Alina, so at Abbott Northwestern, came on to talk about COVID and pregnancy, which I'm really excited about this talk only because we have not had a pregnancy one in a long time. And when we had the pregnancy one back then, it was still so new that we were kind of just... Yeah. Learning a lot. And I don't think we need to belabor a lot of the, she went through some of the different kind of general things that we all know. You know, right now we're at a little over 5 million cases and about 164,000 deaths I saw on the news today. So the know, highest number of deaths worldwide with a case fatality of 3.2% now. Yeah. Now the pregnant women, they believe there's been roughly uh, 37 deaths, 4,000 hospitalizations. So one of the limitations of that, she felt, was a lot of these probably are not being reported, and some people may have been early in pregnancy, didn't know. Uh, so so that's really the, kind of a number we're going to just have to live with, I think. Well, then it's going to be, you know, I, I, if somebody gets COVID early in their pregnancy, are they going to tie that to complications later in pregnancy? Probably. But are they going to tie that to complications later in pregnancy? I think we're going to hit a lot of gray zones with that. Yeah. So... So I think that then, I think we probably want to go to the risks of the pregnant patient. That's where she kind of started. So she talked a little bit about, yeah, so she really talked about this. And it's not greatly different than what we'd see in regular people that are non-pregnant. Kind of that same thing where we get their airway edema and uh, all these different different issues. But she talked a little bit about, um, about some of the cardiovascular things that are, normal in pregnancy and that would be kind of that baseline tachycardia that increased plasma volume but i think Uh, i'm going to go back to respiratory because i think there are differences in some way just with the baby taking up space so you have smaller chest area because the baby's taking up the abdominal area 
and then you just don't have you, you breathe faster anyway uh, so there's just just based on what pregnancy does to the body yeah we had three pregnancies i don't remember ever feeling that i couldn't take a deep breath it seemed like it was normal to me but maybe maybe you needed to be pregnant four times like i was yeah so so the other thing she talked about was how pregnant women are different immunologically and the fact that there's kind of this pro-inflammatory state in third trimester, which plays into a little bit what happens if they get COVID. And that decreased level of TMB cells, kind of adaptive immunity, and they actually, when pregnant, ha- uh, have increased... Innate. Yeah, NK cells and monocytes. So that's pretty interesting. Now, as we all know, SARS-CoV-2 actually leads to cytokine, cytokine storms, and interleukins and all this and that. And so well, that's where the longer term, like when people have COVID and they have all the hospitalizations and horrible um, complications, it's usually from this cytokine storm. Yeah. So the immune status of a pregnant woman, how it's different, may play a bit into that. And I think when COVID came out, and this is where we talked about really early on with our first presenter, is, you know, this isn't obviously the first time respiratory things have hit pregnancy, but if at the beginning of a new disease like COVID, you're going to have to compare to what you know about previous. And if you look at H1N1 influenza from 2009, I remember that because guess who was pregnant during H1N1? Um, that was me. Oh. Um, but hospitalization up to 87%, severe disease up to 22%, the 12% case fatality rate overall, increased rates of all sorts of things, preterm births, small for gestational age, intrauterine and fetal demise. And luckily at that time, Oseltamivir, Tamiflu really did help. And so it was bad if you got it when you were pregnant. I remember being pregnant during this. My mother-in-law called me one day and she's like, did you get the second H1N1 vaccine? And I said, well, I did get both influenza vaccines this year. And she goes, good. Do you know who's dying of this disease? Pregnant women. I'm like, super thanks for telling me. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like 24 weeks pregnant. So. Anyway. And SARS actually has a very high fatality rate as well, 15% in some studies. So, you know, I think that uh, everybody's looking at this whole issue and wondering why it's different because there has not been that significant fatality rate. But compared to the other coronaviruses, um, there was no vertical transmission with SARS or MERS, regardless of the type of delivery, vaginal or C-section. So I think that was one positive thing they were looking at really early on with uh, COVID is that... You know, we we're hoping that wasn't going to be the case. So. Yeah. So then, on to COVID and presentations in pregnancy. What are your symptoms? Well, if I'm pregnant and I get COVID, I'm going to have that dry cough, fever, myalgia, <laughs> shortness of breath. I'm not going to smell things, which would be unusual for a pregnant woman. Right. Um, most pregnant <laughs> women, they can they can smell things six to eight hundred meters away, and uh, you know the taste issue where they can't taste. There's some things that are less common, actually. A sore throat, headache, diarrhea. And what you might notice if you're pregnant is that you're having decreased fetal movements. You might have more more fevers during that labor period. Um, things could look like hypertension, in pregnancy-induced hypertension, preeclampsia type. Um, and then after delivery, more shortness of breath, tachypnea, increased breathing, and uh, hypoxia. So more of the respiratory symptoms right after delivery. Now, they're defining COVID-19 and pregnancy pretty much like we're doing for everybody everybody else. Uh, there's that whole asymptomatic thing with positive SARS-CoV-2 and, and really having no symptoms. And then you've got the mild people. They got the flu-like symptoms, a little cough, a little low-grade temp. Maybe they can't smell so well. But, uh, you know, relatively mild symptoms. And, you know, I think we are seeing probably a lot more of that. Yeah, I don't think we need to belabor. I mean, it's... 
it's like everybody else. Yeah. Um, you know, once you get to the critical, you have the multi-organ failure and dysfunction, shock, respiratory failure. This is where they're getting vented, high flow nasal cannula. Um, so it, it progresses very similar to pretty much everybody else. But then when you start to look at the different asymptomatic infection rates, um, that does vary based on where you're at. Is that kind of your understanding, Kurt? That's my understanding. And interestingly, some of the different places like New York City and and uh, France and France, they had you know rates that were under 30%, whereas if you look at like Italy and Iceland, man, you're talking 40%. Yeah, and that's what I'm looking at too. I'm trying to decide if that was in pregnancy, and I, and I believe it is, and that's why we're getting a lot of women, they're screening coming in to the OB floors, and they're positive without any symptoms. So I believe that's where these numbers are from. Yeah, and I think a lot of the wide vari- variety and the variation in these percentages of asymptomatic, again, it comes to who's getting tested. Are people doing the universal? Are they not? Is it health system dependent? Is it just high prevalence areas that are, you know, getting tested? And so it's a little bit harder to really nail this down. Like, does it does the asymptomatic data match people who are pregnant to not pregnant? Or is it, you know, just who knows? So how do you diagnose it? Well, you know, this is hard because, you know, labs are very different in pregnancy than they are for like a normal non-pregnant person. And so what does it look like? You know, the white blood cells, obviously, in in regular COVID patients, you get that lymphopenia, so that lower lymphocyte counts. Pregnant patients, they're showing like even lower, like extreme lymphopenia. Um, Kidney function might be elevated rather than essentially normal. D-dimer, of course, elevated, but you can have an elevated D-dimer and CRP in pregnancy, even if it's not COVID. So that, of course, complicates the picture. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, basically a lot of the labs, it's going to be difficult because the labs could look the same as they would in a pregnant person as a pregnant COVID person, which are different than a non-pregnant, non-COVID person. So basically none of these are really helpful. Don't use the labs in a pregnant woman to see if labs are going to indicate anything. Yeah, because basically you're not, you know, just like everywhere, you're not getting that test back real quickly. The imaging, of course, actually stays pretty much like a non-pregnant person. You know, you're still seeing on chest x-rays those kind of, you know, ground glass look. You're seeing the CT chest that, you know, got that same look. And, you know, they talked a little bit about uh, just plain old chest x-rays and the pleural thickening consolidation Actually, she had something on there about uh, ultrasounds, and uh, we've actually spoken with people about those and not really done a lot in the U.S. And I, I mean, I think that's maybe general, whereas maybe in pregnancy they're doing more just because they don't want to throw a pregnant mom into a CT scanner. That could be. So. And, of course, there's cardiac testing that can be very helpful, and there's been a, a lot of a lot of talk about you know some of the things that have been done with heart issues when people are getting COVID with decreased systolic functions and global hypokinesis. And so you need to think about the echoes, the EKGs, and really understanding, you know, whether or not that's going to be helpful in the diagnosis of these patients. Right. But I think like anything in medicine, if you're going to do a test, what does it actually mean? And so that's what they're really having a hard time. If you're doing a test, is it more to protect the people around this pregnant mom who, if they're in a vaginal delivery, they're breathing differently. And so they're aerosolizing more. Or is it you're going to watch them a little bit more closely afterwards? And it's just, what does it all mean? No one really knows yet. What does it mean? Why test? No, just mm. kidding. 
literature review, just a few different studies to really kind of highlight some things, um, which is important. And really, literature review from the U.S. has still found that there's no vertical transmission noted. There are no COVID-related fetal or maternal deaths, although we just said elsewise on different... Well, there was some studies that we looked at last week. From other countries. From other countries, and they kind of hinted that, you know, they had done all these swabs and amniotic stuff and everything, and they felt... They had a case of vertical transmission, but but yeah, we're going to go with no. But like anybody who's non-pregnant and even maybe male, the people who have the more severe complications in pregnancy with COVID are still the ones who are more obese, have more comorbidities. Yeah. So yeah. So most cases at this point are still third trimester, so fifty percent of cases, and I, I've got to believe that just because this is still a new enough. Thing. I mean, COVID's like five months old now, so we've gotten to like half of pregnancy. But, you know, a lot of the cases in the literature, of course, going to all be third trimester because, you know, that's what you're seeing. Yeah. But, you know, I think that the whole preterm birth, um, it's it's pretty, pretty significant, the amount of preterm births in these COVID positive third trimester mamas. Yeah. So then they talked a little bit about illness severity, she did, and uh, some of that initial data from New York really suggested that there was no increased rate of ICU admission, you know, based on their numbers in these pregnant and non-pregnant people. So, you know, there was some similar data from China, uh, but pretty much when she was talking today, when Dr. Bigelow was speaking, it was she was trying to stick with the uh, different cases and reports from the U.S. And initially as well when COVID started, I mean, 30 of these talks ago, um, you know, they had said that pregnant women were not at higher risk or at more susceptible to COVID and all of this, but now they're actually starting to say different things based on the CDC MMWR report. Pregnant women are at higher risk compared to non-pregnant women who are positive. So does that make them more susceptible? Hmm. But if they get it, they're still at more higher risk yeah, if they are pregnant. Three, four months ago, they were also saying it's not aerosolized. <laughs> Oh, never mind. Um, but anyway. Wow. Uh, wow, ouch. Uh, and you could wear yeah. a bandana, it would save you. Ooh, did I? No, I'm sorry. So let's start over. Uh, we're going to edit that out. No, we're not. <laughs> so this But that's, you were just going to say that last line, that the CDC still yes. does not consider pregnant people to high-risk population. So even though if you are pregnant and you get it, it's higher risk, just being pregnant does not make you higher risk. Yeah. Which I still think is baloney. Because we all know pregnancy is a lower immune state. Yeah, but again, it's like some of the medications that make your immune system lay down a little bit. We thought those people would have a lot of trouble too. But You're right. They don't get that cytokine storm and all those other issues. I'm waiting for the report that talks about the ACE2 receptors in pregnant women and the down regulation, but I don't think they've studied that yet. You just better keep waiting. Oh, it's coming? No, it's not in oh. this. I'm like, what did I miss? Probably coming in December. Okay. We'll anyway, still be doing this. <laughs> so they, she talked a little about death rates uh, and such, and how they're roughly around 0.2 uh, percent. And and one of the interesting things is uh, again they're seeing those higher rates of death and and really morbidity in that Hispanic and Black uh, women. So it's it's like especially Hispanic. She said that seems to be the one of the highest risks, mm-hmm. and obviously underlying medical conditions in the pregnant women. Anyone with chronic lung disease, diabetes, you know, coronary vascular disease, those are much worse as far as outcomes. Uh, it was interesting. She put up a couple different studies from Iran, and they were showing much worse outcomes with what they thought was pretty similar care to what the U.S. does. 
And it was pretty interesting when she talked about that. Uh, they had looked; she had looked through these things, and it looked like they're doing very similar medications, but getting outcomes that seem to be worse. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know why. And then you know, we she didn't to go back and belabor this vertical transmission thing. You know, there have been variable reports of PCR positivity in neonates many hours after delivery. So, did that come from mom just nursing baby, or who knows? Um, Neonatal positive IgM, they're thinking, is a false positive. Amniotic fluid vaginal swabs for PCR are universally negative. However, the newer studies, like we kind of alluded to, are showing there is COVID-2 in the placenta. So what does that mean? Does it all the way cross through the placenta, or is the placenta filtering all the nasty? It's like a great big filter. That's why people eat it. I don't understand. <laughs> anyway, they have Stop. They don't yet have data on what happens if you get COVID early in pregnancy or mid-pregnancy. Um, so far, it doesn't look like there's any kind of con- congenital malformations or viral syndromes. But again, there's no data. So stay tuned. Mm. She did talk a little bit, and I don't know if we need to go through all this stuff about kind of the recommendations for hospitalization. I do think it's you know, again, because a lot of these patients don't get all that ill, there might be medium-sized hospitals that are keeping, you know, pregnant people with COVID. But really the criteria are having an O2 sat that's less than 95, you know, some tachypnea, anything over about 25 breaths per minute. Honestly, I'd, I'd be pulling the trigger pretty early here as far as keeping them because you just don't know where they're going to go. But, you know, PCO2, it's greater than 32 on an ABG. And, uh, again, looking at, the, at chest imaging, if you had a pregnant one with Anything consistent with pneumonia from COVID, well, I'd probably be a sieve and let that one in. Well, high fevers and just anything that's weird, nuance and confusion or lethargy. I mean, COVID or not, this is a sick person. You know, you're going to want to, and of course, in the time of a pandemic, that's the only thing on your differential, right, Dr. Punjabi? Dr. Punjabi said that. And then obviously, 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 non-reassuring fetal testing, preterm labor, premature rupture of membranes, preeclampsia, decreased fetal movement, all the normal OB things that you would like work up anyway. I, I often wonder what Dr. Mike would say. Mike Osterholm. I, I understand. Okay. Anyway, he so. would say, I'm an epidemiologist. I do not want to deliver babies. I don't want to have a baby. So. <laughs> so what I, do you do about them? Yeah. And I don't, again, I'm not sure how much of this we really need to talk. I mean, I think that Treat the symptoms, Treat the do symptoms. the workup, make sure the baby's okay. I don't think yes. it's any different than really all COVID treatment. It's just, it's supportive care. It's Tylenol, it's cough suppressants, which none really work, if you've seen that podcast or heard that podcast. And But they are using medications mm-hmm. in the pregnancy crowd. So, you know, remdesivir, you know, no known fetal toxicity. In fact, again, they talked earlier about having used uh, things like that with other viral illnesses and so they are recommending that for patients with severe COVID-19, as we know. Well, and then convalescent plasma, of course, which is what all the new research, the, the sexy stuff is going to, likely low risk in pregnancy. I mean, they're doing a lot of testing, of course, on this. Yeah. And I think if you're getting to the point of thinking convalescent plasma, you're now to the point of the benefit is going to outweigh the harm. Yeah. I mean, really, if you're to the point of needing, oh my gosh, look at this mom who's really crumping, you're going to be like, we need to get this baby out if we can, and we're going to like do what we need to do. And of course, we went back to dexamethasone, or dex, as Dr. Bigelow said, uh, and the whole recovery trial, and that whole fact that, again, the decreased mortality was in patients on oxygen and patients who are ventilated. So that's really where that's stuck, and uh, that holds true for pregnancy. 
Right. Antibiotics only if there is some other concern. You have a GBS status unknown. You're worried about community-acquired pneumonia. The, the typicals. Um, but again, what's not recommended, the H drug. Yeah. Hydroxychloroquine, for those of you who have not listened to a thing we've said yet, H drug, yeah. hydroxychloroquine, don't use it. Yeah, there's like one study that showed that it helped. But anyway... So when do you transfer patients to Dr. Bigelow or anybody in the Twin Cities? Um, the second they look ill. Yeah, the second. <laughs> I don't do OB anymore for the last 10 years, so I'm thinking right away. Uh, but really that persistent hypoxia, tachypnea, greater than 30 breaths per minute. Obviously, you know, high CO2s on an ABG, it's time to move that one along. They talked a little bit about uh, making sure that patients really who are in big trouble, that they should be intubated and stabilized before they go. Um, but I think that, you know, the, those things I think are glaringly obvious if you right. have that patient in your hospital. Right. I mean, you got to look at both patients. You have two patients at that point, and, yeah, you might have to deliver the baby for transfer so it doesn't deliver in an ambulance. But if your baby is – if your mom is this sick and you don't have, like, a severe – Severely well, cap, you know, capable ICU and a NICU, you should probably not keep that mom. Probably not. Good thing I'm never going to be pregnant again, so I don't have to depend on you to make that decision yeah, for me. I'd be like, she's confused all the time. <laughs> That's not new. So I don't know that we really need to go to how to get all the consultations and all these things. That If people wanted uh, information from Alina, that's uh, easily obtainable, and their transfer lines are well, um, I think, well advertised. Yeah, and so, if they're if you're hospitalized with an OB issue, premature rupture of membranes, preeclampsia, preterm labor, any of these things, think COVID ahead of time before it goes really poorly. But anyway, do we want to go on to Denise Herman? Yes, we do. So, so that was a very good talk by our friend Dr. Bigelow, and we hope to have her back maybe a couple, two, three months down the road to kind of see what kind of experience she's had since that time. <sighs> I remember when we talked to. Talked to, no, I was on this other call for something, and Dr. Snow from yes, St. Cloud. Cloud, and he was talking about when all of the, the meatpacking stuff or whatever, the big facilities in St. Cloud got hit poorly, you know, a few months back now, but how they were not prepared and how they just had this huge influx, and it was like learning by fire hose and then how they developed these protocols and like got super used to doing the COVID patients in St. Cloud even just because they had no choice. So it's good to, I think, be prepared in your facility to know, okay, what are we actually going to do versus let's wait for it to hit the fan. Yep. All right. So Denise comes. Oh, can we just say one more thing about, I'm sorry, I think we missed a whole page. Yeah, but it's a lot of stuff that I guess I didn't feel like was necessary. Well, I think keeping in mind what COVID does, the hypercoagulable state, so you're going to want to consider Thrombolism, thromboembolism prophylaxis post-delivery um, because they could get a DVT from COVID. They could get a TV, DVT from hypercoagulable state of pregnancy. You know, not to forget these things. The other one big thing if people do OB, try to be cautious with methergen if you have a postpartum hemorrhage because of the cardiovascular respiratory status and the implications of that. So any of the other things, just not methergen. Are we moving on now? Sorry, I do OB. These things are important to me. All right, on to Denise Herman. On to Denise Herman. She is a nurse practitioner who works at MDH. Uh, they work in collaboration with the Department of Education, and they've been involved heavily in the whole 
should we send kids back to school thing? You know, she talked at the very beginning about how this virus is spread, all these things that we know, how it's much more airborne, more aerosolized in certain situations, less fomite or from surfaces, but definitely a lot. And unfortunately, it's frustrating to everybody because they can't answer questions, especially with the schools, you know, back in June because things change so fast. And so they have to balance the students and the teachers. Like everybody has to be balanced in this situation. And you also got to look at families and what they want and where in the state you are. So they've had a lot of balancing to do. They certainly do. <laughs> and uh, really a lot is unknown. I mean, she made that clear. <laughs> I mean, we don't know everything. And so they're trying to kind of mitigate the efforts really to reduce the transmission, right? You're, you're going to do what you think is right. And it's interesting because later in the talk we talked a little bit about this whole is the southern part of the U.S. kind of our laboratory? The eastern side, they already started they school. They started school. And I think Minnesotans are smart. We're going to watch that. And it's going to be one of those things where you can like, whoa, look what they did. We shouldn't do that. So I think there's certainly the chance that something might change. And what to know is each school district, each county has this planning guide. They have to do this preparedness plan. They each need to send into the state all these different things. In the event of this, this is what we're doing. In the event of this, this is what we're doing. Number one reason is for the health and safety of students and staff. Of course, social distancing. How are you going to do food? How are you going to do cleaning? How are you going to do monitoring? How are you going to do people stay home? Ventilation. mental, But mental health and wellness were on there. And I think that's super important both for your staff and your students because we all saw in social distancing kids did not necessarily love that. Well, they don't do it. Well, that's Grandchildren, they don't. They don't understand social distancing. But I also think one thing that's going to probably be frustrating to families is, but in this part of our county, we're more heavily dense, but in that part we're not. So how come we can't do this and they can do that? But people move. Like people are transient. So where do they might, work? Where do they work versus where do they live? What are they bringing in? And so they also not only have these county people, they have like these regional people of our state to really try to jump in when needed. So MDH is really working on this and looking at kind of this three-pronged approach, the in-person, the hybrid, which is in-person and distance learning, and oh. then just distance learning. So how, how are they going to do this? Well, again, as Heather mentioned, we're pri- they want to prioritize the safety of students and staff. You know, I mean, that's, that's the key. And they, they talked earlier about the fact that the average teacher is somewhere between 40 and 50 years of age, so nearing the age where they'd be a little bit more risk. Right. And, I mean, just the different understanding how this is all going to spread and what we do know about the disease, yet we don't know a ton about kids. Of course, they've all been a little bit more at home and less not going to the grocery stores and all of that. I think the biggest thing that's going to be very helpful as we move through this in our state is this 14-day county-level case rate per 10,000. So it's this formulation basically taking how many new cases have you had in your county in the last 14 days, you know, divided by the county population, which is divided by 10,000, blah, blah, blah. You get this number. And this is all over MDH website, so you could really go there. But ultimately, right now, the number is less than 10. Everybody's in school no matter what. And as that number gets higher, 
is it starts to go more towards the distance learning. So if you're above a 50, everybody's at home doing distance learning. But they prioritize the hybrid and the at home to the older students because they tend to act more like adults. And when I say older, I mean like 11 and up. But the really big focus is keeping the elementary students in classes if they can. You know, the funny thing is I was talking with a, a not a hospital administrator, a uh, administrator at a school, and he was saying they were going to be using rock, paper, scissors as a way to decide. Okay, that's not true. I would win. So, yeah, okay, <laughs> not true. Rock, paper, scissors not being used. So um, selecting correct, the learning. But I would still win. You probably still win. So selecting a learning model. So, again, the percentage is going to really help you decide. And I think that will these be adjusted uh, you know, when we were talking about this, I thought, you know, are they going to adjust these numbers at some point? Because they realized that even at the lower numbers, we're having more trouble. Right. And so I we will it's, see. It's it, going to be very fluid. Yeah. And it's like she said, no one's ever done this before. Correct. So. And then really, what are we doing about testing? What are you doing about contact tracing? And home testing, the saliva testing is going to be available for every educator and school staff. This does not mean that the school is testing your kids. This is for the teachers and the people who work there. Which is good because I hate saliva. But the other issue, and again, and I asked her this and they don't know the answer, but all the research we have seen on saliva testing is really like get out your magic eight ball. Yeah. So basically what we saw was you might as well do rock, paper, scissors on that, on that saliva test. But you would actually have a better chance on, you know, winning on rock, paper, scissors yeah. on this saliva test. Like a 50-50 for being right, which is obviously not a good test. So. You could have a psychic. Never mind. Anyway, hey, maybe. So, so anyway, we have to stay tuned for that because I'm just not all that comfortable with that being the primary testing. So yeah, we read all the studies, and I can't think of a saliva study that we have read that was really super favorable. Uh, are they well, available? Th yeah, I think they might be. Coming up on one of our... On one of these Tuesdays, we actually have um, the microbiologist guide coming back from Mayo yeah. mm -hmm. and then Dr. Nasca, the infectious disease in Essentia, coming back. And neither of them have been very favorable with well, saliva testing at this point. I think my first question to Dr. Nasca is be, how do you feel about spit? And, and is it spit or is it like hockalugi? No, it's spit. I'm just joking. I know. Anyway. Keep going. Then they kind of talk. I'm not going to go through all this. It's talking about like, I think the the point is of this graph you all can't see is that if you have more than 50 close contacts who have been exposed to you, it sounds like they're going to bring in like the National Guard to do big testing events. Mm. Okay, I might be exaggerating a little bit, but yeah, universal testing will come in if more than 5% of people are positive that have nothing to do with each other. And that's kind of counterintuitive that when there's a whole bunch of problems, you bring more people in. Aren't we trying to social distance? I'm just saying. But anyway, anyway. I think the bottom line is. I'm in the out of the box guy here in the room. Right. You also don't have kids. The really, I think this is what's going to be the bigger game changer. And I didn't even really think about this. But if the parents are being tested, the kids cannot be in school until the test is negative. If it's positive, the kids can't be in school until the parent is well. And then for another 14 days. So she's, you know, the. The scenario would be like 24 days out of school. So the schools are really required actually to come up with how am I still going to teach this fifth grader for 24 days? They can't be in the room. So they're going to be doing this is where the hybrid thing's going to come in. And it's and you're going to have a whole bunch of kids at home learning while other 
members of their class are in class just based on who's waiting on a test, who's waiting for symptoms, who's recovering, whose family is sick. I think the pro- the problem with this, and we talked about this, uh, we asked her a number of questions, and I still believe that sadly we're going to have a lot of people who are going to be sending their kids to school when there's somebody sick and they're not going to admit to it because people have to work. And if they're sick, they're not going to tell their kids, oh, yeah, let the teacher know I'm ill. No, I, I think that people... And rightfully so. There's people that that are they living live paycheck. paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. So I think this is going to be really hard, and I think uh, we're going to have people slipping off to school that probably shouldn't be there. And uh, I mean, it's kind of on your honor, but well, we asked the also question at the end: like, food. What do you do when, like, I'm a healthcare worker? Clearly, if I'm waiting for a test to come back on myself, I still have to work, like with a bunch of extra masks and stuff. But I'm still working. You can but, take off. But, I can handle it. No, but really, like, I, I'm i not, like, everybody else waiting on test has to be at home. But if you're, like, critical, as she called it, we're still supposed to be at work, yet my kids can't go to school when I can go to work because, so no one's watching my kindergartner. And she's actually does pretty well no. by herself, so I Except I, my three-year-old go can't work. go to daycare then either, so. No, the five-year-old can watch her. So, let's Another, Well, I guess I have four kids that can watch each other. That's right. Keep moving. <laughs> anyway, I think as far as the isolation guidance, you know, the CDC has changed a lot. Um, basically, it's a symptom-based return rather than a testing-based, so they're not going to test people to check for a negative anymore. Um, basically, you can come back when it has been at least 10 days since your symptoms first appeared, so since your first symptoms 10 days, and at least 24 hours with no fever without medication, and symptoms have improved. And that's hard because... Some people don't even get a fever, and some people have such mild symptoms they wouldn't count it as a symptom. And what if somebody has, like, a chronic cough anyway? It's just a lot of what-ifs, and I am just kind of being devil's advocate right now because nobody knows. Yeah, I don't see any of these bullet points that really talk about the whole thing that if you get – what happens if you get sick again? And interestingly, just today, I have a family that got sick twice, eight weeks apart, positive PCR – and all po- on the second round, I did IgGs, and all but one was positive. So they are actually studying this now. They asked uh, to link up with these people because NIH is looking at this. But the the interesting thing that they're talking about is that if you get sick a second time in the first three months from a positive PCR, you do not have to be requarantined. And I think that number is going to change, Dr. Bell. Well, you know, and you pointed this out again before we started talking on recording, that we did read an article like a week and a half ago that showed that you can have waning immunity at six weeks, which is half of that three month. Yeah. And, I, you know, initially, and a I month or it, so ago, mm-hmm. they said it was three months and now the data's changed. But Yeah, and actually I think it was 43 or 47 percent of people at six weeks, have no antibodies. So, right. so is three months the right number? I don't know. It might be six weeks. Right. So yeah. we'll wait on that. There will catch up eventually. And asthma care, I think this was a big thing. I'm just going to point it out. Asthmatics, according to the other study we just read last week, is that asthmatics actually are at lower risk because they have fewer of those ACE2 receptors, which is good. But what do you do about asthmatics who are in nebulizers? Is that aerosolizing? Is it not? Really, people, kids, especially in school, should get on the inhaler, um, if able. With a spacer. With a spacer. See how I I fill in those gaps you have? 
Yes. So masks with valves, not acceptable. Don't do that. Don't do that in the state of Minnesota. They will send you home. Yeah. I got a bunch of those because I'm a woodworker. So, and I can't wear them. So I'm I'm very unhappy about that because they are seriously thick masks. But they have a vent, so it lets out all the stuff you're supposed to be filtering from your dirty mouth. I'm looking after me. Okay, I'm not wearing them, just to be clear, but gosh. And then, apparently, there was a study that came out this afternoon, like new, like, discussion on the gator masks, you know, the the, the neck ones, (laughs) compared to, like, the cloth masks. And I had a conversation with the principals about this last week, and the benefit of the gators is that the kids can't, like, set them down, lose them, touch each other's. I mean, think about that, how gross. But they're showing that they're just... It actually can make it worse. It can actually aerosolize and make the viral particles smaller if you're breathing through one of these single-layer gator masks. They didn't Mm. say anything about the double layers. Sadly, they look really cool, though. They do, and I just, yeah, apparently the school is looking into getting lanyards for kids to hold their masks on, like to hold their masks (laughs) when they're not wearing them. Like, how dorky is this world becoming? (laughs) You know, one uh, one of the things about quarantine that I thought was interesting is this whole thing, if you live with somebody who got COVID-19. And we looked at actually a study last week where, you remember that, where 5 to 50% of people get sick if somebody in the home has COVID. Right. And it probably the average is somewhere around 20%. And we've all seen this, mm-hmm. patients with COVID, and then no one else gets it. Right. So it is hard to decide how you quarantine people because of that data. Right. Especially if that initial person was asymptomatic, that tested positive. But the key is that MDH does have links for guidance on all of these close contact things. Um, And this is kind of the bottom line of what what they think at this time. But again, I expect these things to probably change. So here's the deal. If you want all of this information, man, she had a bunch of links. She had a bunch of posters. She had a bunch of handouts. She had a bunch of just a bunch of stuff. If you want any of that, of course, email Katie Stangle. It's S-T-A-N-G-L at catholichealth.net. Otherwise, go to the MDH website. You can search it. You will find it. The other thing is is they have different emails, depend, like different email addresses of the state to pri- send what your question is. Are you asking a question about a high school? You're asking a question about a sports thing, daycare. So then you can actually get it right to the actual people. So go to the website. Otherwise, email Katie. We can get you these handout slides, whatever you might want. Or we could just call Dr. Mike. Dr. Mike. Our friend Mike Ostrom. Mike, you can come babysit my kids, except he doesn't leave his house. He actually, I think he said he would babysit. <laughs> so I think we're all done. We are. We'll be back Next week first on, no, we'll probably be back this weekend. Sunday with the hopefully journals that might get belabored. We might have to separate it into two if they come out with two weeks worth. Yeah. It seems like people are starting to listen to us. I I can't figure out why. Because I'm hilarious. Not true on that note. (laughs) Thank you, Battle Legs. Uh, We'll let you take over and we will talk again soon. When I was a little boy, I'd play outside with stones and sticks and hang upon your windowsill, wishing we could be. When you were a little girl, you wouldn't see that I exist. My knees would fail, my tongue be still, wishing we would meet.
grow up smart but not so wise That's how a restless mind begins Stealing, drinking on the curb Forgetting we could be Loneliness is never far You slam the door into my chain How fortunate I've been tonight You finally know me Set them up and shoot them down, we could never be. Set them up and shoot them down, drink it in the moonlight. Set them up and shoot them down, we could never be. Set them up and shoot them down, drink it in the moonlight. Set them up and shoot them down, we could never be. Set them up and shoot them down